You're listening to Tove, a podcast about the good place and Jewish ideas. Hey, it's John Spiracevet, and I'm co-hosting today with Leora Kling Perkins. Hey, Leora. Hi, John. So, Leora, tell us where you do your rabbiing. Well, I am the associate rabbi at Temple Amuna in Lexington, Massachusetts. So you are not that far down the street from me up in New Hampshire, which has been great. So what we really want to know about you is which character on The Good Place of the main ones do you think you're the most like? So as I've been thinking about this question, I've been going back and forth, which is because I think I'm obviously a <laughs> cheating. So <laughs> I, I very much relate to his indecisiveness and this desire to kind of get it right. How about which one you'd like to be more like? Part of me actually really admires the way that Chidi eventually does come to his sense of confidence by the end of the show. If spoilers are allowed. Absolutely, yeah. And I, I think it's not just that we see him before and after, but we really see him kind of in the process of recognizing how to be confident and how to recognize that there may not actually be any one right answer. So I, I think I relate both to where he begins and and also kind of aspire to that to that character arc that he goes through. That is great in the same character for both questions. And which is the total opposite of the usual (laughs) rabbi Jewish educator thing, which is say, well, I'm clearly all, you know, we're all some of everybody. So well done. Well played. (laughs) What's your good place origin story? How did you start to get into this show and get hooked on it? So my spouse and I have a really hard time finding TV that we both want to watch together because I tend to like things that are thought provoking. And sometimes I like watching, you know, dramas, or I really love the West Wing, which he does not want to watch at all because he needs things that are uh, somewhat upbeat and uplifting. And (laughs) he thinks that you watch TV to be entertained and to relax at the end of the day. So when we somehow came across The Good Place. We're always looking for shows that we might watch together. And this was just very clearly a show that we both loved. So we've watched it twice together. And I think, you know, <laughs> so some some other episodes we you know we've watched more than more than that as well. So this is kind of our go-to show of, oh, what do we want to watch? We love Ooh. the good place. And did you start watching when it actually was initially being aired? No, but we did catch up because I remember, you know, waiting for the second half of one of the seasons or something. So, you know, that's always the thing about TV, which is once you catch up, then you have to wait for each episode. So, so we, we binged through, I think the first two seasons. Ah. (laughs) Yeah. So we're here to talk about chapter 37, The Book of Dugs, written by Kate Gersten, directed by Ken Whittingham. And Leora, why don't you give us the summary of the episode? Great. Chapter 37, The Book of Dugs. The group arrives at the good place in a kind of mailroom that smells to each of them like a favorite fragrance association from their lives. They are discovered by Gwendolyn, who is ready to believe every story they make up about how they got there. In fact, everyone who runs the good place is pleasant, complimentary, and devoted to obeying rules above all else. 
Michael arranges a meeting with the committee whose members listen to Michael's charge that the point system has been rigged by the bad place against all humans. They agree the matter is serious and deserves thoughtful study and declare they will take 400 years to select the perfect investigators. Chidi dresses up as a mailman to fulfill Eleanor's fantasy. Janet is upset that Tahani and Jason know about Janet's and Jason's prior relationship, and Tahani's well-intentioned attempts to make them feel better only upset them more. This helps Michael realize that the problem with the point system actually comes from the unintended consequences of good acts. Because modern life is so complex and intertwined, even good actions are bound up with bad results. The doorman arrives and informs them all of their upcoming meeting with the judge at IHOP, the interdimensional hole of pancakes. Thank you. So I think we're going to loop back to the the meaty thing toward the end of your description. But first, just anything in a, a fan rav vein that you just loved and chuckled about the episode. I, there were so many things about this episode. I mean, first of all, it's the first time that we actually get to the good place and it's unimpressive. <laughs> it's like they're in the good place, but they're not in the good place. Eleanor's frustrated the whole time about this door. So, so I, there's just like something that feels like really great about that. The people of the good place are just hilarious to me. Like from <laughs> Gwendolyn to the committee, like the committee, they say, oh, like while we deliberate, we will shower you with compliments. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then Michael, you know, he was like, I thought I wasn't going to like that, but this is really nice. Yeah. <laughs> that, that what you just said was the only thing about the committee that I liked. I mean, it was clever. It, was, it made me cringe so much. Right. It's terrible. Right. It's so terrible because there are these like, I mean, we'll talk, I think, you know, this connects to kind of that meaty piece later, but also there are like these, delightful, well-intentioned people who do nothing, yeah. <laughs> but they like, they seem to care, or at least they like have this facade of people who understand what'll make you feel good. Uh, yeah. The memorandum about, don't you, can't you see these memorandums we've written each other about how seriously we're taking this? Also like Jason can always be counted upon to say the really serious stuff in this way where he just like happens to discover it where they're deciding at the beginning what to do. And Chidi says like, why don't we just level with the good place people? And Jason says, yeah, we're refugees. What kind of messed up place would turn away refugees? (laughs) You're like, oh, (laughs) that sounds like a silly Jason comment, but it's not at all. Right. Yeah. That's one of the, every so often they seem to slip one of those things like that in, you know, as opposed to, you know, I betrayed whoever who rescued a crocodile by stealing it from whatever. Right, right. (laughs) That was very clever. For me, there was a lot. Well, I did love Gwendolyn. Of all the good places. Oh, my God. uh, She's amazing. Yes. (laughs) When Michael was, when they were discussing about how he would reach the committee and how you can't call them, but uh, but he'd pick up this phone and speak to anyone you want. And he, he says, and you would have, it would be untraceable. And she says, you know, sure is. What a fun thought experiment. <laughs> right. But she tells them everything they need to know. Yeah. But in this way where she seems to like really naively believe that everyone's going to follow the rules always and only tell the truth. Even when, what was it? Michael says like, oh, is there a dog barking? And she says, no, there can't be. But out of politeness, <laughs> I'm going to go and check anyway. <laughs> 
And I wondered, I still wonder after having watched this, you know, once through, I think this is probably the second time I've watched this episode, that are they like, there's a notion of goodness, which they're making fun of in in such an over the top way that that it's like, oh, you know, is this is this what we got the bat? Obviously, Sean, who I adore, and a lot of the demons are, are so I'm not such a big Trevor guy, but like Sean, I, I love and so interesting. And they seem to have like multiple dimensions. And these people are just, you know, like this, this, uh, it's not so much that they're not sincere about being good, but that they think good is just being complimentary and, and obeying rules like that's a that's not a serious definition of goodness. Well, I actually, to like kind of jump into it, I I was thinking about this and kind of the core of this episode is the revelation that Michael has about the Dugs, where he recognizes and, you know, I, I brought the quote, which I'll share in a moment, but like he recognizes that the problem is the world is complicated. And just because you give your mother roses doesn't mean that's necessarily going to be positive points. But the people of the good place all follow the rules in ways that have these really terrible consequences, right? They're willing to say, oh, we're going to take 400 years to select a committee, and then they're going to take a thousand years to investigate themselves to make sure that they're able to do this (laughs) properly. And in the meantime, people are being tortured. And so everyone is being tortured as a result. So, you know, they're actually doing the exact same thing that people on earth are doing that is making them be punished, which is like doing things the way you think you're supposed to do it as a good what that you think makes you a good person and not necessarily being fully aware of all of the unintended consequences. So that's maybe a more a nuanced view of what the show maybe is trying to, to right. do with them, which I will, which I will of course give them credit for. <laughs> I do want to say before we loop back to that, I, and I'm a huge Darcy Carden fan. I'm a fan of all of them. Oh, yes. right? But I think especially the, always the facial expressions as Janet is dealing with her 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 frustration <laughs> and her angst over this relationship issue that she's in and just the the staring and the the grunting, you know, end of conversation being the the trying to be the neutral Janet. And I think emotions coming out of my butt, that's a great line. <laughs> and, and she feels so human in this episode. Yeah. Yeah, really feeling those complicated emotions. (laughs) I don't think of teenagers this way, but this is like what I what I wrote down. There's the caricature of the teenager on Saturday Night Live, Bailey Gizmert, who does the the movie reviews and does that sort of like you're so embarrassing me, grunting and that kind of thing. And this Janet reminded me a lot of that kind of eye rolling stuff. And the other thing though is I think my favorite line was when I think. In one of the Tahani attempts to sort of make them feel better about this secret that they've now opened about the the past and Janet's continued love for Jason, and the three of them are talking, and Janet says, "I feel both pitied and put on the spot," and I thought that was both hilarious and whoa, a brilliant line. So real. <laughs> Very yeah. Any other laughs you want to throw out on the table? Oh, Chidi fondly remembering sneaking into his parents' office to read the unabridged dictionary. <laughs> like, I don't even know what that's about, right? He's like so excited. A classic Chidi moment. I have to say, I had a I had a version of the American Heritage Dictionary when I was in I don't know, late elementary school, which was different from the one downstairs. I never like figured out exactly how much fewer words it had in it. It was like blue and yellow. Like it was meant, I think, to somehow appealing and less stodgy looking than the the one downstairs. And uh, I did go through a brief phase where I liked to read the dictionary. (laughs) 
Excellent. Achuchiti. <laughs> Achuchiti, yeah. Although although I don't think Achuchiti would have been more conceptual. He would have been interested in, I'm sure, the root words and things like that, which were not in the, <laughs> any of these dictionaries right. that I remember. <laughs> uh, I also, I just loved what happened with Tahani in this episode also. Like, she's on such a trajectory. She's always wanted to be important and be able to do things for other people. And I feel like what she's trying to do in this episode when she's trying to help Janet and Jason is actually like so lovely and altruistic. She really doesn't seem to mind at all that she's, you know, fake married to Jason or whatever they're (laughs) calling it, right? Like it really doesn't feel awkward for her. She really wants to help them both. She really cares about them and wants them to be happy, which like itself seems like this significant thing. And, And yet what she's trying doesn't work until this thing that she accidentally says to Michael kind of actually propels everything forward and actually like ends up being the key to this whole challenge. So it's always nice to see like Tahani, like really getting at something. And I I think that's really kind of a repeated theme as we move forward where Tahani really, she wants to do things that are valuable and important and she's trying to figure out how to do it. And sometimes she does it in a way that wasn't necessarily what she was trying or thinking of, but, but she gets there. I'm really glad that you brought up this dimension of her because so much of the show, even while she's becoming more interesting character, has been about the 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 selfishness and the materialism and things like that. But I'm now remembering that the episode that really first probed her in season one, which I think was called Tahani Al-Jamil, it was where Eleanor was like stalking her to try to figure out what her, you know, bad secret was. And all Tahani was doing was it was after one of the first glitches in the neighborhood. And she was trying to figure it out by just going around and bringing good cheer to people. And ultimately, I think that uh, and then it was and then Eleanor spotted her having her own sad moment around Jianyu, who wouldn't talk to her. And, and began to realize, oh, this really is genuine. And so this is maybe a little bit of Tahani tapping into that, that always there part of her. Right. Well, I think the same part of her that is self-involved and wants people to think well of her is also the same part of her that actually wants to have a positive impact. So like the negative and the positive are kind of part of like a similar desire to be recognized, but also to be recognized for something significant. So you want to take us into a theme here? Yeah. So I think the quote that's really at the heart of this episode is the one that Michael says when he figures out what's going on, that actually the bad place isn't rigging the system. But what's going on is that the world is so complicated that actually people are just being judged the same way they always were. But now their points totals are so much lower because the world is so much more complicated and it's so much harder to have a good impact on the world. So here's the quote from The Good Place. And then I, I brought in two Jewish texts that I thought might have something to bear on this. So in 1534, Douglas Wingar of Hawkehurst, England, gave his grandmother roses for her birthday. He picked them himself, walked them over to her. She was happy. Boom, 145 points. In 2009, Doug Ewing of Skaggsville, Maryland, also gave his grandmother a dozen roses, but he lost four points. Why? Because he ordered roses using a cell phone that was made in a sweatshop. The flowers were grown with toxic pesticides picked by exploited migrant workers delivered from thousands of miles away, which created a massive carbon footprint. And his money went to a billionaire racist CEO who sends his female employees pictures of his genitals. So, you know, it's all about the unintended consequences. And so there were there were two texts that this made me think about. 
And both of them are actually in the context of judging large groups of people. Hmm. So the first text that this made me think about is about Noah. So Noah, we're told, was righteous in his generation. And so there's this famous debate between Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish about what does it mean that Noah was righteous in his generation? So Rabbi Yochanan says, oh, it means compared to other people in his generation, he was righteous, but not compared to people of other generations. And the medieval commentator Rashi kind of spells this out and says, you know, if he were living in the time of Abraham, then you'd look at Noah and you'd say, oh, he's a normal guy. He's not anything special. He's only special in comparison to these other people around him. But Rish Lakish says in his generation, he was righteous. All the more so would he have been considered righteous in other generations. So if he were in the generation of Abraham, maybe he would have been as great as Abraham was. And so there's this debate of do people act kind of on their own? Are you just whoever you would be? Or are you really acting in the context of your society? And so I, I think in a really strong way, this this episode is arguing that we act in the context of our societies. That's the only way that we can act. It's the only way we can actually think about what to do is in the context of the world that we are around us. And I, I actually think it's really notable that the person who says that, who says this is Rish Lakish. He's the one who says, you know, the comparison is really what matters. Rish Lakish used to be some sort of a bandit. And he actually changed himself and he became a rabbi. And so he is very much aware of the way in which your context influences your behavior. He had to change his context in order to change his behavior. Mm -hmm. And so he's the one who's making this, this insight about Noah. So I feel like this idea of living in the context that you're in is so true about these Dougs. When Doug lives impacts the number of points that Doug gets because he acts in the only context that he can, which is the one that he's living in. So, wow. I, I have to say that I was thinking about this. I'm, I'm certainly so glad that you brought this example of, of Noah. I, I was partly re-listening to the episode of The Good Place. You'll, the reason I say re-listening is because I was in the car and I was on my way back from a funeral. And one of the things I did at the funeral, it was where there was a family who were spread out and they couldn't all be at the funeral. Mm -hmm. And I was there with my iPhone, which was exactly the example that was given about the contemporary Doug. So I used this potentially evil device, you know, in order to, to do this thing that bring people together and bring comfort to this family. And I really, really focused on that. And certainly in that moment, I thought, well, there was no question that this is a good act. Certainly the alternative would have been to to do none of those things. And compared to that, that certainly would have been awful. And I like the way that you are framing this, especially how you said that like the only generation we can act in is the one that we are 
in. That is, I'm finding that right now as I'm processing that super helpful. I think that people, and, and you and I are, sli I'm slightly, maybe a half generation older than you, I think. And because I'm always in this problem of comparing myself to the, uh, the people of the 60s who are like a half a generation older than me. And I didn't march for anything. I didn't put my life on the line in the ways that other people did. But there also wasn't. And now, and then I asked myself, like, is that true? Was, is it, maybe it's possible there was something that I, I could have, I just didn't see it. And I wondered about that, you know, with Michael, like, okay, so once you become aware about the sweatshop and the all that kind of stuff, does that not give you a challenge that then you have to deal with? Like, you're not allowed to be to close your eyes to those other things that that the points are leaking out from. Do you think that's part of is the race Lakish dealing with that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's what I find like both so compelling about this episode and. Also, it's so hard because I relate so much to this struggle. I also have a cell phone, right? I also use it for lots of things. How could I not in this world? It's hard to imagine. And there are so many things and so many ways in which we have impacts on the world around us, including negative ones. It, you know, it's, it's impossible to attend to them all, right? We can be aware of them, but I think it can be paralyzing when there's, there feels, it feels like there's so many. So do you get from this particular midrash about Noah, do you get some guidance about that? I don't know about guidance. I, I think there's a certain amount of comfort, certainly in the position of Rachel Lakish, right? And saying that, you know, you shouldn't be so hard on yourself about this, that it's, it, it's important to try and do the right thing within the context that you're in and to recognize that your abilities might be impacted by that, right? So it's a little bit like the rabbinic phrase of lo you know, it's not upon you to finish the job, but you have to keep trying it. So I, I think a certain amount of awareness is important. We shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't be convinced that we're all going to the bad place just because we're not able to, you know, fully disengage ourselves from, from the consequences that are as a result of the, of the way in which we inhabit the world. There's another text that I thought of, which is actually from the context of a group of people being condemned because of their behavior. So there are two pieces. So this text about Noah actually came in the context of these groups of people that are being judged. So it was saying that there are all these different groups of people such as the group from the flood, but each group is listed and they're kind of wholesale not being judged because what they did is so terrible. Yet, then we have this idea about Noah, that Noah did something that was in comparison better and Noah is actually being saved. So I think there is something redemptive in that idea that like, yes, there's a certain amount of groupthink and maybe that amount of groupthink can lead us to do bad things that really are bad. But if we're able to somehow be aware of that, we might be able to rise above it as well. There's this other text that I wanted to bring in from Bava Metzia, which is about the destruction of Jerusalem. And Rabbi Yochanan says, Jerusalem was destroyed only because they adjudicated cases on the basis of Torah law. That makes no sense. <laughs> that sounds like that's how you're supposed to do it. So the Talmud says like, what else would they have done? Should they have just been arbitrary? And the answer is they should have gone beyond the letter of the law. So we have the law that tells us what to do, but then you also sometimes have situations where you need to use your common sense. You need to actually think and you need to actually trust your own 
consciousness to recognize, oh, and your own conscience to recognize this may be what the law says, but actually there's more here that we have to think about. And so I think that's that's part of what we're being called upon to do as well, that you know, it may be perfectly normal for me to use a cell phone to order things. And it doesn't mean I have to stop doing that, but that maybe I, sh- I do need to be aware of how I can do something differently as well. Hmm. There's so much here I'm trying to unwind yeah. and, and apply. It is great. I was thinking already about something, another midrash about, about Adam and Eve, uh, Adam and Chava, that has sort of tickled me for the last number of years. This idea that originally they were created as very tall, and that that when we say in the first chapter of Genesis that that humans were created in the image of God, that it means that they had the capacity, the physical capacity to see as many things at one time as we would imagine the divine sees. All of this, of course, being metaphorical when I talk about that. And then that, that somehow afterwards, if you, and this is a whole other story, whether I even think that what they did was wrong in the Garden of Eden, but subsequent to that, just the same way the snake had had its legs cut off and, you know, was sort of closer to the ground and its field of vision is smaller, that so too the people People were kind of shrunk to a, mm-hmm. to to our scale, where we can only see what we can see, and and sometimes that comforts me to think, well, maybe there's an original, maybe there's a capacity of human beings in some ultimate redemptive sense to to see and take in all of these unseen implications, and then do something about them. But we don't have that for whatever reason. We're in this predicament where we're you know we've only so many neurons to devote to thinking about every item on my desk right now and the story of it, and so we can't be held responsible to all of that. Hmm. And, Love uh, that. I <laughs> I appreciate that so much. And I don't know why I personally can't can't shake this. I was thinking about one of the things that you said about the this Rish Lakish in the first in the first interpretation of Noah sort of helps me think about the actual four humans who Michael is advocating for. Because he's not saying when Eleanor was selling the horrible supplements that actually, you know, harm elderly people, it's not like, well, that was she just didn't, you know, those were good, but she didn't see that they were negative. That was just bad. <laughs> and, uh, right. She knew it was bad. There's no defense that comes from that. And actually, you know, really most of what these four human, like Michael's case here, actually, I'm not sure it applies to the four humans he's got. I'm just thinking this now, you know. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because I, I feel like at least at the beginning, they were such caricatures. And so their faults were very clear. I mean, even if Chidi and Tahani, we had to do a little bit of digging right in the first few episodes when we thought they really were supposed to be there, I guess, the first season. But they're they're so caricature-ish. And part of the point of the show eventually is that actually the world isn't that clear cut. Yeah. And the other thing I think that I, and and again, I'm sort of catching up to my own thoughts because you've given me so many prompts because you've given me so many like things to latch onto is now I think I'm getting a little bit of a better picture of who this good place committee is. Mm-hmm. Sort of on my way in, I was thinking that one way you can deal with the complexity and the sort of utilitarian dimension of you might unleash bad outcomes is to say, well, therefore that kind of utilitarian point of view doesn't work. And it's back to virtue ethics like all the time. So we can be complementary to each other. We can do all the moves that the good place staff do because we're powerless to do anything else good. Mm-hmm. And, but that, that 
doesn't look very good either <laughs> in this episode. These guys are, I mean, they're wonderful. They're diverse. They definitely, their DEI committee clearly was, was really awesome in the good place. And, uh, and yet there's something just so terribly wrong about, about that. And actually, Michael and the whole team at this point have committed themselves to a project of, I guess we call it tikkun olam. They're not just there to defend good acts here and there, but they actually think that the system, they have something to offer to that. And Noah, I guess, who you're mentioning, he was caught in the situation where he legitimately did not have any any option. He could think about making the world better down the road, but he had no option for making the world he was in better. At least that's what the, the Torah tells us. So it's reasonable to think that, you know, he couldn't, but also he didn't have the right to just sort of sit in his shell. He had to build this ark. He had to to populate that and so I'm, I'm really intrigued by this parallel that you're that mm-hmm. you're tossing in there yeah i'm i'm still thinking about what you were saying about the good place committee that they're both so out of touch but it's almost i mean if we like bring back this whole context idea right like where are they they're in the good place <laughs> right they're not actually like interacting with any of the people who are being impacted by this mm-hmm. So like, you know, it's all well and good for them to create these committees because they're not actually like seeing the real impact of it. Mm-hmm. So I think a perennial question I have, and I've talked about on previous episodes is, is context, you know, individual context. Tahani comes from a certain, you know, she's embedded in a certain context of her life and socioeconomic or whatever, totally different from Jason. So they can't be the same person. They do live at the same time, and now they live in the same place. And so I'm wondering, you know, Michael's move is to is to pick out people who are connected because of the same name and differentiated just by their context. Does oh, I'm trying to think of what the question is I'm trying to ask. Well, you're making me think of something. So you were mentioning before about how like the four humans in the good place don't actually seem to be like the story of the world being complicated doesn't seem to be their story. But the more you think about it, we're told a story up until this episode where we believe that they each have one reason why they ended up in the bad place. And if they hadn't had their single flaw, they would have been in the good place. So if Eleanor hadn't been so selfish, if Jason hadn't been so... <laughs> right, but like you know, if Tahani hadn't been so involved, if if she had been more decisive, and and the judge seems to back that up because that's how she tests them. She tests them on their, you know, I guess Jason, it's impulse control. Yeah. Like you know, she tests them on that one thing, but then suddenly we're finding out actually it's not about that one thing. It turns out that even people who don't have any of those problems aren't getting into the good place, and it's because of the complicated world. And so suddenly the story of how they ended up in the bad place is actually being rewritten. They never had a chance. Mm. You're saying that they were shaped in some way by, you're saying that in a way, their individual thing, the thing that looks individual, like their one isolatable foible is really also the product of their, their world. Well, it certainly isn't the reason, it's not the only thing that kept them going into the bad place. Right. And actually, yeah, and I guess the other thing is that the the idea of, of change, you say Rachel Akish was able to turn around his life by going from a, a negative point guy, a bandit, to a positive point guy, a, a rabbi. And, you know, we would think that at some point, and I don't know how the, how the cosmic system works, that some aspect of the, the later sort of redeems his, I don't know, again, how we convert, how many negative points have to be, you know, balanced out by positive points. But that's a change. And these people, too, are trying to, to say, like, 
the things in their previous part of their life should be looked at differently because they did use them. They had to reflect on them and they had to use them to to make a path forward of self-improvement, but ultimately, you know, that rebounded, helping each other and even ultimately, right, is helping Michael and, and Janet in this project of, of rewriting I mean, the system. Yeah. Well, and interestingly enough, I feel like this goes back a little bit, that like, why did the judge send them back to Earth? That was all part of an experiment to see if their context actually mattered to their behavior. The whole theory was, well, if they're taken out of the world and they're just put in this kind of more sterile environment, they became better people. So now can they do it in the real world? So so actually in some ways like this this idea is just building on that idea of how does their context impact them? That even back in the real world, Eleanor was able to pick up and change herself and become a better person. But she you know, she needed help to get there. One thing that I'm I'm now thinking about, and this is maybe more reading in than deriving out, is how is, you know, the effect of an awareness of these issues, what does it have on sort of your, your life path as you try to make a, an ethical life path? In some ways, the whole premise of these podcast conversations is that it's better to be aware than not, and sort of thinking about issues of moral philosophy is, is better than not doing that. But I, in this context, I'm thinking about a conversation I had with my daughter, Leela, who's in college, who's been on the podcast before, because I was encouraging her a few years ago as a high school student to read the newspaper. I thought, you know, she's smart. She doesn't get as good a social studies education in high school as I wish she did. And she's around parents who are plugged into the news. And my parents would read the paper, the actual physical newspaper at the table. And we get the New York Times and the kids, you know, never open it up. And so she picked up that challenge at some point and said, okay, I'll do that. And I remember after a few days, she's like, why would I do this? It is full of awful, not just bad news, but awful things going on. This is demoralizing. You know, why would I want, why would I want to know this stuff about the about the world and, and I was like wow touche yeah. like that plays against the idea of now especially if that kind of thing is going to make it harder for her to pull again or anybody to pull against the the grain I don't think that's what it does for me I wrestle with the awareness I remember one of my I, I, for me I had a colleague I was co-teaching with at a day school who was an environmental guy and and I think it was this friend of mine, Mark Meiri, who in the kinds of a extracurricular club we were advising, showed me the slavery calculator. You put your lifestyle into this very graphically pleasant website and it tells you how many slaves uh, it, it's taking in the world to like sustain your lifestyle. <laughs> and like I urgently need to know that and I so don't want to know that. Yeah. Sorry, I threw a lot of, that was a long, a long monologue. I didn't no, I, I agree. <laughs> I was just reading a piece about how climate change in Europe, that Europe has done more than like anywhere else in the world, maybe to really curb their emissions. And yet they're suffering so much right now with mm. climate change. And it's just, it's not. It's not fair. We're in this connected global world. Well, and it's, it's depressing. Uh, yeah, but I'm glad you said that because I think maybe the case Michael is making, which is that it's not, it's, let's see if I can ugh, figure out how to say it. It may be that a society needs to deal with these issues, but the individuals in terms of their evaluation, how many points they're getting, can't, you know, they, they you know, might get points relative to society. So yeah, the uh, the impact of, of, of the environmental crisis might be worse on these on these countries, but that doesn't mean that people haven't earned the, the points essentially for, for having done it. 
And I guess the case that Michael is making is that I don't think what he's just trying to say is buy roses, because that doesn't make that Doug any better than the Good Place Committee paying him compliments. And I think he wants people who get, like he said, you know, I strangely, what was the line you quoted? I strangely love this, getting the compliments. Oh, right, right. <laughs> I think you're trying to think about like, what does Michael actually want? Like, what should people be doing? Part of what he's saying is like, maybe we shouldn't be punishing people for buying roses for their mothers. Hmm. Yeah. And like, I think at the point at which you do become aware, you know, which we dealt with when we met Doug Forsett, who I think was very aware of the consequences of his actions on other people, and that became that yeah. too burdensome. So there is some kind of there is some kind of balance here. So do you think when you look at these couple of, of Midrashim that you put, there, there's, there's no way you think, you know, essentially, it's not that he had no connection to the context he was in, but that he, his actions have to be seen in that context. Right, his actions have to be seen in that context. And kind of the mess, the lesson that we learned from Doug Forsett. You have to be able to live. You have to be able to live in the world and not walk around being barefoot and vegan and, you know, <laughs> whatever. I mean, you could be vegan. I think that's great. Yeah. But, you know, like all the ways in which he's like totally paralyzed and allows people to beat up on him. That's not life either. And it's not actually getting him anywhere when it comes to points either. So, you know, I think it's both saying like, you should be able to live and not worry about every tiny little impact. And you need to be broadly more aware of the impact, right? You have to be like both more and less aware, like maybe not sweating the small things in the same way or the things that you don't have power over, but actually paying attention to the things that you do have power over. I mean, I think it's really complicated and it's really hard. I super want to recommend the part of Mike Schur's book, How to Be Perfect, where he talks about these different dimensions of utilitarianism and how you play that out, because he really does a very nice job mm. laying it out. And I think taking a position, which is really a good one, while sort of keeping the pieces of that utilitarian set of point counting that are potentially beneficial that we shouldn't lose track of. I The other, the other text that you brought had to do with judging according to the Torah, the letter of the Torah law versus not. Yeah. Do you want to say anything more about where you would merge that in here or apply it to the episode? Yeah, that just felt so relevant to the episode because in some ways it's saying, like, I mean, in some ways that's the voice of the current system. The voice of the current system is saying, like, you have to be aware of unintended consequences. And just because you think you're doing the right thing because this is what the law says doesn't mean that what you're doing is enough. So in some ways, that's the law of the system as it's set up, which feels like this negative thing because it ends up being so punitive, right? And the people, you know, the temple is being destroyed and the people are being are being exiled simply because people didn't realize that you, you know, you need to do more, right? Like it feels very punitive. I think if I were reading it outside of this context, I might feel like this text is actually a call to not just let yourself be limited by what you're being told to do or whatever system you're in and a call to actually use, again, use your own kind of discretion and rise above it. So I feel like maybe this context is helping us see the limits of that kind of thinking. It can be punitive. If we think of it outside of the punitive context, maybe it can be helpful. Mm. The way you said it, I'm thinking about the the Good Place panel here, because one of the things they are doing is applying exactly the rules, the, you know, the rules yeah. of good behavior. And that's clearly the wrong thing, you know, and Michael is pointing out, like, you are 
it's exactly the parallel. You're, you are enforcing the laws as they are written. It hasn't contemplated, you haven't contemplated that there's something else that might be necessary and all these people are right. going to be condemned while you think about you know, whether you're like Right, right. So the same text, which feels like in some ways it encapsulates the mindset that is problematic is also actually a wonderful critique of what they're doing. And I think there's something really imp important about the way that the good place is so geared towards rules yeah. that like there's actually a message here of like oh it's not just about the rule like <laughs> like rules have a place but you know if you just follow them then nothing's maybe nothing's going to change yeah yeah you know there are a couple ways it seems like the episode presents that rules can be limiting they can be limiting because you can think that's the only thing happening like you don't realize that your rose is connected to something else uh, because michael is also arguing that the essentially the rule or the kind of the maximum the maximum of buying flowers for people to be nice like that's a good thing that he's standing up for there are certain kinds right. of yeah yeah. So it's really hard to know which rules are limiting and which rules are are kind of expansive. Maybe maybe what he's saying is that, you know, the rules of committee work where you have to write a memorandum, you know, and, and process that, like that's a bad rule, but the but there's another kind of rule where you Right. Uh, I, I mean I think there's something dangerous in this too. Because if you say that we're not bound by the rules, are are you saying that the ends justify the means? Which I, I don't think is the case. Michael is breaking the rules by picking up the phone to call the committee, <laughs> which seems totally necessary and called for in this case. But there are lots of other other ways that people might choose to say, you know, the end justifies the means. Rules don't matter if it's bringing us to such a terrible place. And I don't know that we would necessarily condone any kind of behavior just to get to where we feel like we need to be. Yeah. And I think this is a plug for the kind of Judaism that you you and I happen to be identified with of uh, conservative Judaism, which is really an attempt to do both, to sort of see the value of rules as a structure within which we act and that help channel us to our good things, but that at times are limiting and need to be sometimes broken in some profound ways in order to, exactly for reasons of inclusion, the kind of including and and that, that Michael is talking about here. And if yeah. people, uh, maybe we'll be able to throw something in the notes about that, that might help. Again, mm -hmm. we're not on the podcast selling any particular philosophy of Judaism or approach, but at least for those kind of interested in what it is that's, that those kind of broad uh, approaches to rules are, then we might have something helpful we can share. Yeah, absolutely. I just, I love this episode. I think there's, there's so much in here. It resonates so much and it, it also just feels like so much of the show has really been building up to this point. And I like how you really took some of the things that for me in this episode were cringeworthy or has me sort of waiting for the end and sort of helped me see how they wove into the whole fabric of, of what was being unfolded as a as kind of a, a theme, not just in the last five minutes, which I really appreciated. And so, Leora, Kling Perkins, I also wanted to ask you if there's anybody you want to lift up as someone who early or earlier in your life kind of got you thinking about ethics or ethical philosophy. Yeah. So I've had so many wonderful teachers and I've also had so many wonderful teachers. I was, I would say formally in, you know, school settings and also, and also in my life personally. And I am thinking a lot about my parents and the way that they helped me to think about kind of the consequences of actions. My parents, Carl Perkins, who's also a rabbi and Alana Kling Perkins, I think have been really, really wonderful teachers for me. 
And one of the things that I think they have always really helped me to do is to think about the ways in which my words might be interpreted differently by different people and that that's something we really have to hold on to. So I'll say my my parents are both very wonderful editors and so you know I love sending things that I write to them and it's always really helpful to hear oh you know I think you meant this but coming from this perspective I might hear it in this way and that doesn't feel great. And so the way in which thinking about how your words or actions <laughs> hit people and not just what you meant by it I think is is a really important lesson that I always try and take forward. <laughs> mm, thank you. So, Leora Kling Perkins, it's been great to talk with you and I hope we'll do this again. Fantastic. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. And thank you for listening to another episode of Tove. You won't want to miss our next one, a special conversation with Eric Kissack, who is editor for The Good Place. So make sure to subscribe and help others find our podcast by giving a good rating and sharing on social media or just talking about it. We have show notes for each episode and other useful resources on our website, tovegoodplace.com. And connect with us on social media at tovegoodplace or by emailing us, tove at tovegoodplace.com. Leora Kling Perkins blogs about all kinds of topics at the Times of Israel, and we've got a direct link on our website on our hosts page. I'm John Spirisavet. I write at rabbijohn.net, and I'm on Twitter and Instagram at rabbijs3. Thanks again for listening. Now go learn more about something good. Bum, 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 bum.